this Hello Suite. On this amazing episode of Star Pod Trek, we consider the Star Trek content in Starlog Magazine from 1978 in issues 17 and 18. Special guests include Bob Turner and Kelly Casto discuss Susan Sackett's Star Trek report. Joe Cepeda considers Gene Roddenberry's views on Star Trek The Motion Picture. Dr. Migo, Paul Clark, reminisces on what it was like to order Star Trek items through the mail years ago. All this, plus commentary on Joe Haldeman, Ralph McQuarrie, Star Trek conventions, and more on... Star Pod Trek! Greetings and felicitations. Hip hip hurrah, tally ho. Hey, my little biscuit. Hey, Puddin. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora. If this is your first time listening to us, welcome. On each episode of Starpod Trek, we open up two issues of Starlog Magazine and discuss the Star Trek and science-related articles. We also consider what it was like to be a Trekkie decades ago. If you are listening to us on a podcast app... Make sure that you find our YouTube channel for bonus content and Star Trek episode reviews. Please join our Facebook group. We look forward to meeting our listeners at the following upcoming conventions. The convention formerly known as Star Trek Las Vegas. But 55-year mission, Las Vegas. So they've got over 100 guests every year. They're having a lot of the major actors from, from all the Star Trek shows. They've got William Shatner, of course, and... He won't stop at anything. Oh, oh, I know. I mean, it's just He could be run over by a train, and he'll still be showing up at conventions. <laughs> Three conventions in a weekend sometimes. Yeah. I mean, it's just amazing. And, and they're actually having Frasier this year. That'd be good. I mean, that that's so cool. <laughs> yeah, quite a bit of guests there. Um, we're looking forward to it. We're looking forward to meeting some of our listeners there. They've already reached out to us. And then, two weeks after that, the greatest of them all. Dragon Con. What do we love about Star Trek at Dragon Con? They always have a huge Trek track there. Um, it has its own programming, and that they have guests and fan discussion panels. It's all very cool. And we will be be involved in numerous panels. Actually, we will be considering a panel discussion on Vulcans. Yes, and a Star Trek fan film panel. We'll be on that panel. And also moderating a panel on the comic book track with guests, writers, and artists that are involved in IDW comics. And some of them have worked on Star Trek. We always say the report or the schedule is not set in stone. So we'll be posting more information on our Facebook group page about the exact dates and times, usually about a week before the con. And they are having the parade this year and we'll be in the parade too. We'll be in the Star Trek section, as always. Starlog Magazine, issue number 17, October 1978. Log entries. Latest news from the worlds of science fiction and fact. What we know about the solar system will be brought to life in a new hall called Exploring the Planets, due to open this fall at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum in Washington. Fantastic astronomical art, plus video displays, scale models, 
animated film segments, and computer quizzes will provide a guided tour through the solar system as we know it. So we found out in previous issues of Starlog magazine that originally this museum was not going to include any space aircraft. It was strictly going to be airplanes, helicopters, and such. But because of the fervor over the space program, they had to adjust how the museum was set up. And now we've been to the museum before and got to see the original Enterprise. I can't imagine the museum not including spacecraft. They had a lot of stuff there concerning space. I mean, that like a capsule and even a model rocket ship. I mean, yeah, and of course the Enterprise. So it's a fun museum to visit. And at this time, it notes this new hall was being presented about the planets. And in fact, the artwork for the planets was handled by Starlog's space art advisor, Ron Miller. So we're seeing, once again, science fiction and science fact crossing paths. And, and it's great that they, so, so to put it in a museum, you know that enough people are, are interested in space to, to go there to the museum and see it. And that's just wonderful. That's another thing that, that Star Trek helped contribute to was the, um, the fervor that people have for space travel. Space Shuttle Service Station When the space shuttle goes into service next year, it will only be capable of staying in orbit for seven days. That's because the shuttle can only carry a week's supply of electrical power. Now, this news article talks about the next step empowering the shuttles, and that is having the space stations have solar cells, and they would be constantly being recharged by the sun. I mean, it totally makes sense. It, it makes sense. And, and yeah, I mean, it's great that they can do that, too. So I was thinking about this. We know that in Star Trek's future, man would be less dependent on sources of fuel that are finite. Do we think the space stations are solar-powered in the Star Trek universe? Probably stays in one place. So, yeah, it could stay close enough to a sun to uh, to be solar-powered, I think. But but it, it, it still has to worry about things like planets coming between the station and the sun that might block it. But it seems like it could store solar power, and, and some of it could be could be stored for times when there is a sort of eclipse that they would have to, to go through because it probably wouldn't last that long. And and it is interesting saying the the electricity on that shuttle would only last a week, which which actually that's pretty good if you, you can charge it up to last a week. My cell phone doesn't last a week without charging. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Hi, I'm Bob Turner, and I'm Kelly Casto, and we're from the podcast '70s Trek and the unofficial Trek podcast. Yes. Welcome to our little section. Yes, our little Star Trek section. We got to talk about the Star Trek report from Starlog issue 17. And that was back in October of 1978 is when that issue came out. A long time ago. <laughs> Thank you for confirming that. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? The first thing I noticed was the big Beautiful photo of the Battlestar Galactica on the cover. Wasn't that cool to see? It was. And uh, and on that cover, too, they're promoting articles on Gene Roddenberry and Steven Spielberg. Right. Now, tell me if you were kind of struck by this, too. I was leafing through it digitally leafing, which is really clicking a button. I'm leafing through it, and I come upon an article about 
Ralph McQuarrie. Now, I saw that, yes. Talking about all of his cool work for Star Wars and also the abandoned Planet of Titans, Star Trek movie, and, and some other things that Ralph has done in the past. So it was like, wow, this issue is loaded. Yes. Because yeah, it also had the article on Gene. Yes. And yeah. was that uh, McQuarrie's picture on the table of content page, too? I believe was it was. Drawing? Yeah. So pretty cool. Good issue. If it's just laying around your house and you haven't picked it up yet. <laughs> or your iPad, you know. And you- Some 40 years later, just go ahead, dust it off and give it a read. Yeah. Uh, when you finally do get to the Star Trek report section, um, of course, there's a big banner, right? That says, yes, Virginia. Yes, Virginia. There will be a Star Trek movie. Kind of a play on that uh, old saying, you know, from a eight. I think it's in the eighteen ninety seven editorial. Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. Right, right. So, um, I don't know. You want to give me your thoughts first? I mean, what what did you think of this? Well, I mean, there's a lot going on here, uh, and just at a high level, um, she's describing the you know filming began what august 7th of 78 mm-hmm. and uh, you know basically that it's frantic there that you know there's lots of chaos and and even though things are moving along they're filming they're still doing a lot of behind the scenes stuff that um you know that goes into making a picture but you know basically they have the enterprise or the, the bridge of the enterprise done so they can start filming on it, but maybe not other sets are done. Yeah. Yeah. I thought, found that interesting too. Um, that in fact, they're improving those sets. When I saw the word improving, I'm thinking, well, that means adding detail probably because it's no longer phase two, the TV show. Now it's the motion picture. So you need it bigger. You need it more detailed. The big screen is going to get a lot more, um, focus on all that detail. Yep. Yep. I also thought it was interesting that um, she talked about the rec deck, which was neat. I mean, that's one of the coolest things uh, as far as the enterprise sets go in the motion picture. Right. You know, you, they teased us in books. If you read books and we never saw it on the TV show, but it made sense. It'd be some kind of large area where everybody could come together. And finally in the motion picture, we get to see it. And, and she's obviously teasing us with, uh, with that idea here. So that was pretty yeah. cool. And I, I especially like how she says, and there will even be basically a window. So you can see that there's space out there. Yes. Yeah. And then she also talked about how all of the, um, Locations were really being shot at Paramount, except for one, they needed to shoot some scenes for Vulcan. Right. Something that looked alien. And they still didn't know where they were going. <laughs> right. I mean, it's crazy. Yes. So this is published in October 1978. Production began on August 7th. I'm wondering if she isn't writing this maybe in June or July. Yes. Because we know from past issues that the Star Trek reports are typically about five months behind. Right. Now, it could be that this one is only 
two or three months behind. But it's yeah. we know that there's a lag there. But it almost sounds like this is earlier than the production date. Uh, some of the things she's writing about, we don't know where Vulcan will be, for example. Right. So I just wonder, was yeah, some it, of this put together before the actual production date, before they had yeah. all the details? Or it could be that she dashed this off really quick in August and sent it off with the idea of creating a second one for the next issue, you know, more in detail on yeah, on the production. But I would think that if that – now I'm scratching my mm. head because I'm really outguessing myself. I think that if this truly was written after October 7th, then she would have been telling us about the production. Yeah. So I, well, now, I, now I'm convinced. I've convinced so, myself. So I'm, I'm actually, I might differ a little bit. I think she's typing it up literally the day that they're starting production. And, and, you know, there's a lot going on and, and she seems like, you know, I might, I might be overthinking this, but she seems very rushed and base and basically because of what she is putting down, it's almost um, for a chunk of it, just bullet points of here's some really quick updates and you know um you know here's people that are working on different things which we've already done some of that so it's a little bit of an update and um and and maybe you know it's just an afterthought hey i gotta get this done i i think it's fair to say that we both might be overthinking of it uh, overthinking uh, yes. of it a little bit yes. too much yeah yes and sorry susan for yes guessing. if we're no disrespect intended. No, not at all. We're playing with puzzle pieces that we never saw the full picture before. Right. And, and so we're we're playing guessing games. And we know how hectic it, it could probably was. Oh, very hectic. I'm sure because that office had to be quiet for what? Let's see, 75 to 77-ish and suddenly, oh my gosh. Yeah. Things just it take off. A lot of hurry up and wait. Yep. She also uh, mentions that Magic Cam... The company is nearing completion on the models and miniatures. That is the special effects company that was hired as part of the TV show Phase Two. Right. Now we we know, sitting here in, in 2021, that Magic Cam was pushed aside for Robert Abel and Associates, who didn't fill the bill, who were pushed aside for <laughs> Doug Trumbull and and his team to come in and and finally finish the effects at the last minute. But I found it interesting that Magic Cam is still sort of involved in all of this. Yeah. Obviously, they started the process of building some models and miniatures, and they just said, you stay with it. Just keep building. Right. Keep going. Keep going. And so they were working on the six-foot Enterprise. They're working on the, the dry dock slash space offices uh, and the uh, Vulcan shuttle. Yes. So I, I like that she called those out and – you kind of know what they're working on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 1978, when you have no idea what this movie's going to be like, yeah. kind of cool to hear, wow, there's going to be a, a dry dock. There's going to be a shuttle. There's, you know. Right. Yeah. I thought that was neat, too. She went on to talk about then some of the roles and some of the folks that, that are serving on the production. John Poville had been a story editor for Phase 2. He is now promoted to associate producer on the film. He's right. a young guy. He is at this time. So that's kind of a big, um, um, a big promotion for him to get at that time. But well, is, and, and there must be confidence in him from Gene and, and the studio 
probably more gene. So. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I thought it was uh, interesting too that um, the costume designer on the original series, William Ware Tice, Bill Tice, yeah, did not return from the motion picture. We talked about that in Severus right. Trek. Right. And here we have Robert Fletcher coming in. Robert Fletcher has a lot of Broadway experience, a lot of Broadway musical experience. Yes. He has no science fiction experience, and he has no motion picture experience. Right. But when you're a show like Star Trek that doesn't want to create Flash Gordon, Buck Rogers, The Forbidden Planet – those sort of old views of what the future might look like. Maybe this is a good hire yeah. to get somebody in that has no connection with any of that. Right. Right. And she even mentions that, that they really like bringing him on board because of his varied background as she, as she called it. Yep. Yep. Uh, on the surface on paper, you read that and you go, what the heck did you hire this guy for? But then if you, yeah, scratch away you know? a, yeah right right but if you scratch away a little bit it, it don't it does make some sense he's it not does. going to give you the traditional sci-fi looking wardrobe which is what you right. want you don't want that yes that's i always thought that that's where star wars separated itself was the wardrobe was different mm-hmm. and of course the models and the special effects were very different too that from what we had seen in the past yes yeah and then Fred Phillips is back from the original Fred, series to do Fred's makeup. Back. Yeah. That had to be, you know, like if you're one of the regular Shatner, Nimoy, Kelly, all of those guys, and you were in the chair on the mornings when the original series was being produced and cause they got to know Fred Phillips, I'm sure. Oh yeah. And here he is now when they all get together 10 years later on the motion picture, that's gotta be a bit of comfort Yes, for all of them. Well, and given that it's makeup and you're, you know, some of the actors are sitting in that chair for a while, like Nimoy with, you know, yeah, the applications to his ears and eyebrows and whatnot. So, yeah. Yeah. And here's, and, here's and something. They gave that, a nugget too, right? They did. They talked about. Klingons. The change in the Klingons. Yeah. Well, it didn't go too much in the change in the Klingons, but just brought up in this article where none of us know what this movie's about at the time. And she drops the Klingon word here and says that he's working on designing the new makeup for Klingons. Yeah. So, and I love that the new design for the Klingons after production has started. Well, <laughs> that's why I'm wondering, maybe some of this was written early. I don't know. And and yeah, you might be right. You might, be. it definitely Boy, if it he's doing that on August 7th, he's behind schedule. Yeah. But it also, and you're probably right, because the day they're shooting, I'm, yeah, you know, she would have known a lot of this stuff. It would have been pretty yeah, much done deal. Probably. Probably. Susan also mentions that Paramount has received a flood of mail from aspiring oh, yes. actors. I thought this was funny. This, asking if they could audition. This whole mailbag section was funny. Yes. Um, and then she went on to to say, you know, sorry, don't contact us. Go go contact the unions. 
Go talk right. to the guilds. We don't have anything to do with that. So, right. but we but we want you to go through the guilds because we want to put on a quality production, and we're going to only hire through the guilds. It's almost, it's almost like Jean said to her at some point. And next time you do one of those damn reports, <laughs> make sure you tell people stop flooding us with resumes and yes. pictures. We're not hiring anyone. Yes. And ironically, we talked about the wreck scene. We know that the, a lot of those extras were from what? Star from Trek fans. Fans. Yeah. Yep. Fandom. That's right. And then the next paragraph was almost the same thing, except it was about your ideas for Star Trek books. And she goes into the process of how an author might have an idea and then that idea is submitted to Paramount and then that idea can become licensed. Then it goes yeah. to Bantam and then the books are, are published. But I, I like how she ended that section. If you have an idea for a book, please do not send it to Gene Roddenberry or our office. <laughs> please go to Paramount or Ballantine Books and leave us alone. <laughs> she yeah she i like the it, it was oh it just felt like you know when you're a kid and you do something wrong and somebody's taking that time to walk through okay here's how this works boom 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 boom, boom. don't ever do that again yeah i i had the impression of almost an exasperated mom going we love you but stop doing that yeah yeah, yeah. Finally, uh, still in the mailbag section, um, oh last time we, I think we did this, we had this little mailbag about Spock's age, and here it is again. Was it, that was issue 14, right? Was it 14? I guess it was. Oh, and So it was a few, a few issues ago. Yeah, yeah, I did a couple. Right, so it's back again. Yes. And I love what she says here. She says, well, you know, many ideas about Spock's age came in, and they were logical. They were also conflicting. <laughs> Which is why we decided to drop the whole thing. Right. So, again, another another way of don't saying. Don't bring it up. That's right. Stop sending us your ideas about Spock's age. Who cares? That's oh, funny. My. Yeah, it is funny. Any other takes on that article? I no. I think we covered it. I, it was it it was fun to read. And and I think this is probably the last one of of the lead up. Yes. To the movie, right? It's, you know, she's been doing this now for a little while, and here's where a script is, is standing in the in the pre-production idea, and here's what's happening now, and here's what's happening now, and here we are right up against the start of production. So yeah. that's probably the last one of this style of we're at the start starting line. We're about ready to hear the gun go off. Right. So, yeah, the next next issue should be very interesting. Absolutely. Yep. Man of Light and Vision, Ralph McQuarrie. Now, as Star Trek fans, we know the work of Ralph McQuarrie and the amazing artwork that he's contributed to the franchise, not only for the pre-motion picture, but also for Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. I mean, my first exposure to Ralph McQuarrie's work was in Star Wars. I remember I was obsessed with Star Wars, and my mother brought home a portfolio of scenes that were production, pre-production, the ideas that were being set forth 
for the original Star Wars movie. And it was amazing. It had pictures of Luke Skywalker with underwater gear on. It had stormtroopers holding shields and lightsabers. It was just mind-blowing, this artwork. I have to say, Ralph McQuarrie is the first artist that I remember not only knowing by name, but eagerly seeking things out by name. And, And we're talking kindergarten or first grade. That portfolio made such an impact on me. And then later on, I found out that he did some work for Planet of Titan, what was going to develop into Star Trek, the motion picture. He's a great artist. I'm so glad that, that Star Trek got him, and he did, he did some awesome work. I mean, this article talks, talks about the history of the man and how he really didn't have any idea of going into the art field per se. He was very interested in airplanes, so he wanted to do something more along those lines. He grew up in the Midwest And within time, he realized that he didn't have the mathematical skills that were necessary to do what he really wanted to do with planes. So he started to do some work for Boeing, and that is drawings, paintings, um, idea sketching, things of that sort. And a short time later, as the family was moving around, he moved to the West Coast. He was actually doing some work and... George Lucas saw some of his work and thought it was amazing because he was actually doing some work for commission work for NASA programs. And that's when George said, wow, your work is incredible. Let's put more of a fantasy element to it and let's see if we could work together. And he rose to the challenge and he did a great job. And and uh, I mean, and it's so neat that he can do the, the space art for NASA, but then also switch over and do the, the fantasy type that's still space art, but also something that's, that's for a movie, something that's not as real, but something that makes you dream about it and it makes you, it still makes you stand there in awe and look at it. And here's the funny thing is that before George Lucas went to 20th Century Fox, he actually did approach Paramount and he showed Paramount some of Ralph McQuarrie's ideas. Well, Paramount looked at it. They liked George's idea for Star Wars, but they looked at the artwork and said, boy, this looks expensive. We really don't want to get involved in expensive science fiction projects. So it's actually Ralph McQuarrie's work that's credited with forcing George Lucas to go to 20th Century Fox. How crazy is that? Really? <laughs> so, so so he did something that looked too expensive for, for the studio. And then he, we know that Star Wars was a huge success. So a few years later, what would Paramount have to scramble to do? Make Star Trek and spend a lot of money. Uh, exactly. <laughs> Guess what, Paramount? It's like that today. They never want to spend money. <laughs> Times have never changed for this company, it seems. Yeah, it, it's true. They do. I mean, even, even though, you know, you can say Discovery has a big budget, but they're still not... Just you know, not, not more, at the budget of Disney. Merchan- yeah, merchandising and things. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, they're still not up there with, with some of the shows. The funny thing is, people were noticing Ralph McQuarrie's work, and especially those that are involved in Battlestar Galactica, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I mean, this guy was in high demand. And because of this amazing work uh, that he was doing, we know that one of the most famous Star Trek connections is his refit of the Enterprise. And his refit of the Enterprise, his idea was to make the ship very angular and very triangular. We we know that when Star Trek Discovery came out, 
What was the discovery based on? A, a drawing by Ralph Macquarie. It was, uh, yeah, yeah. They they actually used one of the old drawings that that was one of the ideas for the Enterprise, but it was one that they didn't use. And so in in this Starlog, you can see a picture that that he did that looks just like Discovery. That that's what's cool about it. It's like, oh, this is from 1978, and they've got Discovery in this magazine. As soon as I saw what Discovery when they released it, what was it, 2000? Was it 17? Yeah, 2017. I immediately knew. I said, that's the original Ralph McQuarrie design. And I love that idea of going back to some of the original drawings and ideas. I think it totally made sense, especially having that large hangar bay at the end. Because you remember the original series just had a small bay. Yes. Whereas that large one, it would, going forward with ship design, you need more space. And obviously, this article was printed in 1978, but we know as fans that Ralph McQuarrie would return to the Star Trek universe and create Starfleet headquarters in San Francisco, shuttlecraft, later on in the 80s. So, Ralph McQuarrie has a unique background to be involved in so many iconic science fiction franchises, but especially in Star Trek. Do you enjoy your Star Trek with lots of action, intrigue, and excitement? This is Joe Cepeda, and if you answered yes, then check out our production, Nature's Hunger, on YouTube. It's classic era, made by fans, for fans. Check us out. An article about Gene Rottenberry and his vision of the Star Trek the motion picture that was coming out the following year and they wanted to get his thoughts and ideas of what the movie entailed. Uh, the article goes into that they were working on the film for over five years and they had major setbacks and they, they even wanted to start a TV series after the original series had ended. Uh, in 1969 uh, called Phase 2 and I understand that movie was almost ready to be produced or should I say that TV series was ready to be produced into the motion picture idea concept took place so this article pretty well uh, uh, resonates to that that they were very excited at the times that there was a new motion picture coming out and Gene Rottenberry talked about the uh, the CGI effects for the new uh, motion picture film, how they would be uh, state-of-the-art and cutting-edge technology. And they would be using miniature models that would make the Starship Enterprise look different and unique, yet it would show the vastness of this giant, large spaceship. Uh, Gene also talked about fantastic sets, giant sets up to three stories high, and and hundreds of yards big, uh, bigger than what we saw in the original series with the smaller corridors and little tiny uh, uh, sets. So this was a magnificent difference from what we were uh, uh, used to seeing. And uh, Gene also talked about the uh, the uh, the view of Earth that uh, in the original series you never saw the view of Earth. But in the article, he talks about how they wanted to catch glimpses of this futuristic uh, uh, Earth that we never saw in the original series. So this is, this is very exciting. 
and he also talked about the awesome music that they wanted to uh, work on uh, to be worthy of the special effects and the motion picture itself. And as we are aware of, he quite delivered on that. And uh, Gene Roddenberry also talked about the fact that they wanted to make sure this uh, film was up to expectations and they wanted to make sure it was very scientifically accurate. So they also consulted with uh, the NASA experts. So they make sure that uh, they pretty well got it down pat on uh, what Star Trek really was and if it was following uh, scientific theory. So uh, this came out at a time a year before uh, the movie came out. So what it was is it was a good piece of uh, publicity generation to really get the fans excited about this new motion picture that was coming out. And he tried to throw out all the the treats that uh, we could probably see on the motion picture. And this article, I think, is kind of a... Fantastic at a time where uh, people just wanted to see more Star Trek because there wasn't a lot of Star Trek out there. So this uh, article pretty well addressed those uh, hungry needs at the time for very starving fans. Hi, this is Gary. And this is Joe. And we're from the American Sci-Fi Classics Track. Don't forget to check out our track room in the basement of the Marriott while you're at DragonCon on Labor Day weekend. In the meantime, get ready for more exciting programming from StarPod Trek. They have the awesome stuff. All Only the awesome stuff. Joe Haldeman and the Science Fiction Alternative Writer Joe Haldeman has won both the coveted Hugo and Nebula Awards for his portrayal of futuristic warriors enmeshed in intergalactic intrigue. The source for his science fiction excursions into space, however, was a decidedly earthbound war. This is an article about the life of Joe Haldeman. I mean, most people know him for his non-Star Trek work, especially the Forever War, but Star Trek fans know him for writing Planet of Judgment and World Without End. Two classic Star Trek novels. Well, it's, he wrote two of the older novels from back when, when Star Trek was with Bantam books. And those books were kind of, kind of iffy. I mean, there were some were, some were better than other, others. Yeah, they were hit or miss, no doubt about it. What impressed me about this article is his, his background and the fact that he got drafted and fought in the Vietnam War. And he was very observant of everything going on during that war. He took note of how people were treated, how situations happened. Also, various character types from those in his platoon. And he was able to look at these character types and apply them to his science fiction novels, which I think is pretty cool. He's he's viewed as one of the giants in science fiction writers as far as that real gritty science fiction that has some uh, military sci-fi, which lately has exploded. Yeah, the military sci-fi is pretty much its own genre now. Absolutely. And he's one of the forefathers of of this subgenre. Also, because he has a science fiction mind and he's a science fiction author, he also believes in certain aspects of Star Trek. So, I mean, I th- always think that's great when there are Star Trek writers that actually like the series. Because we know that that is not always the case. 
whether it be books or whether it be television. Some people don't have a background necessarily in Trek, but they're able to apply what they know into the Trek universe. Especially for the era of Trek that he wrote for, that's when they were trying to recruit known science fiction writers to write Star Trek, and they may not have been fans. Some outright said, no, I don't want to. Yes. But what's interesting of his background is he says in this article that he believes in parallel universes. He gives the instance of twice in his life that he felt that he should have died, but instead lived. And he feels that in some alternate timeline, he did die. But in this current timeline that we're living in, he was allowed to live. So we could say he lives the sci-fi life. It's an interesting thought, and it's yeah, yeah. It's amazing that these writers can can think up these things, and even like to think of himself in that situation, and not just his characters. Now he does feel that there are alternatives to war. Being a soldier, he saw some of the alternatives, and notice this comment. He says a few ideas might actually work if the universe were ruled by logic, but all these stories, hopeful. Chilling, satirical, are entertaining, whether practical or not, and all of them offer food for thought. The ones that offer hope as well offer something rare. How do you feel that applies to sci-fi writing and especially Star Trek? So, so yeah, he sees writing as food for thought, which is which is usually what science fiction readers are looking for, and and the idea that that it's hopeful and chilling. I mean, yeah, we want all those things, and and even though, I mean, yes, we want it to be logical, but you still sometimes you're you're willing to suspend belief on certain things because you want it to be a good story, you want to be entertained, and you want to be moved emotionally, and and it sounds like that that's really what he went for. I mean, that's that's the hallmark of a good writer, and saying it, that it's even satirical. I mean, yeah, we have to be able to to laugh at ourselves or and even seeing seeing stories as a mirror for ourselves the way, the way we it, it might sort of show us the way we really are that we don't want to admit that we are things like that very true and those he did say that it's rare that science fiction offers hope and i think that's the difference with trek that that's what's always been great about trek trek it's what the fans recognize about it that it is hopeful even when there are episodes that leave us on a questionable ending, uh, a morality issue that the lines are not clear. We still have hope for the future. Are you middle-aged or older and attend Dragon Con? Then check out the Dragon Con Over 40 Club on Facebook. It's a place where we share tips, socialize, and just have fun. In the meantime, stay tuned for more exciting programming from Star Pod Trek. Hey, let's talk about a convention that we went to just recently. We got to do an after convention report. What'd you think about Superman Celebration? It was a lot of fun. They didn't really, they didn't have the big guests this year that they've had in the past, but we we got to see some guests from Superboy, and I used to love that show years ago. <laughs> it was on back in the nineties. The funny thing is, people said because we were going with other Star Trek fans. What's the connection between Star Trek and Superman? And the answer is, well, that is where we had our Starfleet International Picnic. 
It was called Starfleet International Superman Celebration Picnic. So, yeah, the, the commander of Starfleet had, had a picnic. It was in a park that was a few miles away from the con, but the plan was to, to go to the picnic one day and then go to the con. So, but it was a lot of fun going to the picnic. Yeah, we're members of Starfleet International, awesome fan club that has worldwide membership, and we had friends from, let's see, Kansas City, as well as Alabama, Eastern Tennessee, we came from Nashville, uh, fans from Ohio, Kentucky, quite a bit of states invaded Metropolis, Illinois, and it's always good to do things socially with other Star Trek friends. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. They had a great turnout. Uh, they, they played games, did trivia, they had an auction, so, I mean, it was basically an all-day thing. You didn't get involved in the tug-of-war, though. No, I didn't really want to do the tug-of-war. <laughs> but we had an auction and definitely walked away from some stuff for the collection. They had some great stuff at the auction, just people uh, who, who donated stuff. And we raised almost $600 for the Starfleet uh, Scholarship Fund, which it always feels better when you buy things and you know it's going towards a good cause. Yeah, definitely. So a a great Starfleet cause. We've been in Starfleet International for several years, and we we've made a lot of friends there. And like, and it's great because like like when we can go to cons and run into people there who are also in Starfleet, and and we we may know we like we see a lot of people we know, but we also make new friends. And they they do a lot of events like that. They do charity events and get-togethers. And our ship, the Warner Von Braun, is based in Huntsville, and they they have their annual picnic, and they do they do other meetups together, going to movies or hanging out in a restaurant. It's it's a lot of fun. Yeah, no doubt about it. So, yes, Superman celebration was enjoyable, but it was a lot more engaging because of the friends we have in Starfleet International. Kevin, this is Scott. Kevin, this is Scott. Do you hear me? Order now. The Star Trek communicators with push to talk button. Scott, this is Kevin. My bike is broken. Can you help me? Over. Yes, but send me a signal so I can find you. Star Trek communicators with a range of 1,300 feet. Push button. Twin warp sound uses one 9 volt battery, not included. Star Trek communicators with belt hook, telescoping antenna, and twin warp sound. From Mego. <laughs> Starlog Magazine, issue number 18, December 1978. Log Entries, latest news from the worlds of science fiction and fact. NASA Air Force Fighter of the Future. Next year, NASA will begin flying HIMAT, a sleek supersonic test aircraft designed to study new aerodynamic concepts that will determine the shape of Air Force fighter planes of the future. HIMAT stands for Highly Maneuverable Aircraft Technology, an appropriate acronym for a plane that's expected to make hairpin turns while flying faster than the speed of sound. Now these planes are going to be controlled on the ground. We didn't see a lot of this in Star Trek overall, but it did happen by the time Enterprise came around. Yeah, on Enterprise, they, they did have episodes where the Romulans were were controlling a, a ship remotely. And, and, of course, and you know, Trip, Trip was on the ship and didn't even know that, that there was nobody else on it at the time. 
Yeah, the article goes on to say that this spin-off technology from HiMAT will probably be applied to commercial airlines as well. But the main goal of this NASA Air Force project is to maintain fighter plane superiority for the U.S. military. It sounds like a good idea, just so that you don't put a pilot in danger, just to have the plane flying by itself. We saw that there were elements of in the Star Trek universe this happening. I mean, it has got to be hard to control a plane remotely from thousands of miles away on the ground. The, the Romulans did it par- partly with telepathy because they had the ENR, the Andorian offshoot that um, that basically ran it telepathically with his mind. I think it was because of the ENR that the Romulans were actually able to see what that other ship was doing remotely. See, that's our problem. We don't have Enar. Exactly. <laughs> Future conventions. These are some of the conventions that are coming up in 1978. Thanksgiving Creation, 1978. Star Trek Convention in New York, New York. November 24th through 26th. Science Fiction Space Fantasy Con. That is in New York on December 16th through 17th. Also, Central Coast Galacticon, Pismo Beach, California. Mego presents the Star Trek Universe's new line of 14-inch action figures. Captain James T. Kirk, Earthman. 14-inch Mego figures. Commander Spock, Vulcan Science Officer. 14-inch Mego figures. The Gorn, a feared enemy of the Federation. 14-inch Mego figures, 24 points of articulation, multiple accessories. Start your 14-inch figure collection today by Mego. I love this yellow pages that's in the center of Starlog magazine. It's the 1978-1979 second annual science fiction merchandise guide. And I'm going to talk to... A very interesting person, someone who has a background kind of like us, loves science fiction ever since he was a kid. Most people know him as Dr. Mego. Actually, he is Paul Clark from the Mego Corporation. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thank you for having me. It's great to talk to you guys. Now, Paul, here's what we got to say. When you look through this catalog, this science fiction merchandise guide, doesn't it bring you back to a day when there was no internet and that for pretty much everything we wanted in the world of Star Trek, we had to send away for it because it just wasn't in stores. Like geeky things weren't weren't in mass media like it is now. Uh, there was no there was no comic shops either. There was no pop, uh, pop culture stores. You know, when you were a kid, magazines were about all you had. The world moved a lot slower then. So we're going to start out. Let's talk about so so when we go through this merchandise guide. Do you think see anything that strikes your fancy that you remember? Well, I grew up on Long Island, um, so in a town called Mineola, um, right on the main strip, Jericho Turnpike, Creation Entertainment had a store, which was like you know Nirvana. It was it was mecca. You know, you got to go there maybe once every six months, and they had actual. Star Trek Migos for sale. That's that's incredible. I mean, that that's a rarity in itself. In fact, the guys there, the owners, had 
the second series Star Trek Aliens for sale. Now, I didn't see those until I was a teenager. I remember no. like looking at the back of the Mego packages and saying, boy, I wish I could get a Romulan. I wish I, wish I could get you know, all, all these are the Mugato. The, that must have been mind-blowing to see in real life on yeah, the shelf because it's such a rarity. But at that point, they were actually selling them. for. They had a price on them as $500 each. And we were like, are you crazy? That was going to pay $500 for an Andorian or a Romulan? But e- no, even back in the day, it was hard to get because of the yeah. way that Star Trek toys were distributed. Yep. He said, they said, I, we don't want to sell them. We lo- want to just show them off. So we put ridiculous prices on that no one will ever pay. And now, to get a, if you could get a Carter Romulan for $500, that's a pretty good deal. This is Creation Conventions out of Flushing, New York. Write for free <laughs> info on fantasy, sci-fi, and comic book conventions all year long. I mean, the yes. first convention I ever went to was a Creation Convention. Me too. Um, at the Hotel Pennsylvania Thanksgiving weekend in New York City. They used to do their Star Trek show. Yeah, I went in the and, 80s. To, uh, to, it was in New Haven, Connecticut, the Park yeah. Plaza Hotel. You I never mean, forget your first convention. No, and, and back then, I mean, it was, they say Star Trek, but it was everything. You're right, it was. It was more of a, it was more of a flea market than, you know, there was so much. You could, the comic book dealers there, anything, you know. You could, you could definitely find guys selling bootleg merchandise. You know, in this merchandise guide, it lists Federation Trading Post catalog. I remember yes. ordering from them. Yeah, yeah. Well, 78, 79, Star Wars had taken over a lot of science fiction. Yeah. You know, it was eating, as Marty Abrams said, they were eating my lunch. You know, yeah. Yeah, so there, much... there was. There was. There was a lot of Star Wars then. Uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind was creeping into a degree. I mean, 1977 was a big year for science fiction. Yep. yep. The 78 and 79, it was catch-up time for a lot of other franchises. Well, that was when we got Star Trek Motion Picture. That's right. That's right. Now, how about this company? Do you remember New Eye Studio? New Eye. They were out of Elmwood, Connecticut. They advertised a lot in Starlog magazine. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, you know, I was mainly a comic book kid. You know, I could get the occasional magazine, but, uh, you know, my mother was looking down her nose at, at comic books to begin with. Now, here, here's an interesting uh, for Star Trek related under costumes, Starfleet uniforms, and it's spelled S-T-A-R-F-L-E-E-T, out of Willow Grove, Pennsylvania. So this is where fans of that time were able to get full Star Trek uniforms. I saw that, and I still want to send for that catalog. And it's a self-addressed stamped envelope. (laughs) I I remember sending a lot of those self-addressed stamped envelopes, too. Yep, yep. Because that was your email. Back then. That's right. That was the only way you had to communicate with somebody. And when I got something with my handwriting on it, it knew it was something that I really wanted because I sent away for it. That's right. <clears throat> All right. How about this? Under fan clubs, the Leonard Nimoy Association <laughs> of Fans out of Englewood, Ohio. Yes. Uh, you know, I I don't think Leonard was associated with it. <laughs> But it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's 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 a random place, Inglewood, Ohio. Is the only official international 
club. How about this one? Star Trek Nuts and Bolts fan club out of Bookings, <laughs> South Dakota. They have a bi-monthly magazine with fiction, art, poems, poetry, poetry. and reviews. <laughs> poetry. I wax poetically on the Enterprise nacelles. Uh, okay, how about this under – remember, this is, this is the only thing Star Trek fans had back in the day. This is – this this in conventions, right? Right. Yes. Okay, under jewelry, Star Trek galore out of Longwood, Florida. Mm-hmm. IDICs, Vulcan hands, right. enterprises, keychains, charms, earrings, 35 cents for a catalog. <laughs> Did you yeah, have any yeah. Star Trek jewelry as a kid? No, no, of course not. Uh, you, were stri- you were strictly what? Miko dolls? Uh, until 1976. I had to give up all my Migos. September of 1976. I was starting the seventh grade. My mother said, for God's sakes, Stop playing with dolls. Go meet a girl. (laughs) So five years later, in 1982, my girlfriend bought me Superman, Spider-Man, Captain America Amigos from Toys R Us for my 18th birthday. (laughs) And I said to my mom, I found a girl, and she bought me Amigos. (laughs) (laughs) I married that girl. (laughs) Nice. Nice. That's a keeper right there. Oh, that's a keeper. Uh Forty years later, we're still okay. Now, here, now here's something. This is again. I, I have to explain to some younger people why Starlog Magazine was so important to us, and the answer always is because we got to read about and see things that we heard about. Because yeah. we didn't have a VCR till later on in the '80s. Like yeah. if you, you just if you wanted to relive a movie or a TV show, you had to hold on to the magazines. You had to collect pictures. Okay, under photographs. Oh, yes. Multiple Star Trek entries, such as Star Trek photos, 8 by 10 original photos on the bridge, black and white, $1 each. Mm. Did you have any Star Trek photos growing up? No. No, I, you know, um, I stumbled upon Star Trek. I mean, I knew Mego Star Trek, and I had the, uh, I remember watching the cartoon, but I remember my first episode of the show was Day of the Dove. That's a great starter. I was. It made me a lifelong fan. But, I mean, posters, posters were, were how you kind of expressed yourself. You know, as a kid, you put up posters on your wall like to, to let everyone know what you're into. How about this one? Star Trek pictures, color cards, 8 by 11, and three small photos, 15 huh? for eight ninety five. Wow. He's going right for the throat. He's <laughs> This is what I got. I got pictures. And he's in Westbury. Another yeah. long calendar. <laughs> he was probably doing it out of his house. A, a lot of these you could tell they were. They mm-hmm. were they were kind of garage kit type things yeah, yeah. when it came to especially model kits. Slicker guys got PO boxes. Yeah. The Star Trek Concordance. Now we have this by B. Joe Trimble. It's still in print. Demand it. And you could order it out of Garden Grove, California. Which was an amazing, amazing guide to the Star Trek episodes. Yes. Yeah. Now you can order records through the mail. Did you order records through the mail at all? Only uh, Columbia houses. You can get these for a penny. Yep. Remember those. <clears throat> uh, Star Trek. Star Trek is two dollars. It's a hilarious forty-five minute spoof. We actually covered this in a previous episode of Star Pod Log. Oh. Yes. 
it is it's pretty funny. Uh, this is pre Weird Al Yankovic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, slides. That was a big deal in the late seventies. Is having still slides that you could project on the wall. Omega Enterprises out of New York, New York. Color sci-fi slides and stills from Star Trek. A catalog number eight is a dollar fifty. Refundable on first order over ten dollars. Did did you and your family do do uh, eight millimeters no. slides? No, my brother had a uh, had a Super Eight movie camera that uh, he used to show. You know, we used to watch it. They only the, the reels only lasted for like eight minutes, and there was no sound. Correct. Yeah. They're like in black and white, but you're like whatever. It was like owning the thing itself. We used to watch a lot of uh, monster movies that way. Yeah, my grandfather had that too. It was a big deal to have movie night at his house. He'd have a yeah. blank wall. He'd take the pictures down <laughs> on the wall and then and project them with the eight millimeter. It was it was it was incre- it was it was so unique because there was no sound, so you were able to talk through it. Right, right, and uh, I don't know. It, it's just it's it's so funny, but I swear the box was the coolest thing. <laughs> yeah, having a little just a little tape in there and and you know in a box, and it's like you own the movie. That was before VHS. That's right. All right, at Federation Trading Post out of Berkeley, California. I know that you must have ordered stuff from them. Yes, I did. Yes, I'm sure I did. And they've been around for years. As a kid, I, I was lucky. Um, it was a place in Levittown, maybe 20, 30 minutes from my house, called Heroes World. They had yeah. opened a store in a mall, and you could actually go in there and get a, you know, like the phaser. Migo had done a, a phaser game. It was That's right, yes. Flashlight yes. shape of a phaser, you know. Yep. The, um, the tricorder was a tape recorder. And at least you could go and see the stuff and, and look at it. And they always had the mag, they always had Starlog in there. So, I mean, a lot of this stuff that when we look through the, the old way of ordering things, it brings back memories. The first Star Trek thing that I ever bought was Amigo doll. Yeah. I, I had the Amigo dolls before I even saw the show. Having the dolls made me want to watch the show. And my dad already knew the episode, so my dad was saying, this this is Mr. Spock, and this is Dr. McCoy. And, like, coached me through it. And the beautiful thing is, is that I in 2018, that's, that's absolutely, you're right, you're right. Yeah, through the cards. So, I mean, when 2018, when Migo came back and started producing items, and we were able to go to a store and pick up Migo, and right. then mail away and get Migo. Yeah. It was like going back in time. Tell us about your involvement in that project. Well, I actually made Star Trek Migos in 2007 with Diamond Select Toys. Um, my uh, business partner, Joe, my old friend, Joe, um, had worked in for Creation Entertainment and was involved with Star Trek licensing. And he had just moved back from L.A. And he was uh, – I told him, I said – I met Marty Abrams at a convention, a MigoCon convention, and uh, he's and I said I want to bring back Migo, and he said sure, a lot of guys do. Go get a license like Star Trek, and then come talk to me. And I said I don't know how to do it, you know. I was like I had I had a, uh, a quest and no way and didn't know how to do it. So Joe said, well I know Star Trek licensing people, like we should do that. We, you know, I was like you got you're doing the bodies, you're doing the outfits, you're doing accessories. You really should be making complete figures. 
So we tried to get the license ourselves, and Diamond Select Toys had it. So we went to them, and they said, yeah, we think this is a great idea. Um, so I had made them with Marty's blessing, gone to his house, showed him the first six figures I made, and he looked at the Andorian, and he says, boy, you really nailed it. I swear this came out of my factory. I was like, I was in heaven. Um, so Marty and I stayed, and actually Marty was got me um, the deal with Mattel to do DC superheroes. So I was in contact with him, and I kept begging him to bring back Mego. And he's like, I don't know. I, I don't want to do small stuff, the collector market. I want to do big. I want major retailers. And he goes, and, you know, it was my family business, and it didn't, it, it kind of ended badly. I don't know if I want to go back to that, you know. So I just kept showing up every so often and begging him to bring it back. Uh, 2017, we were doing um, the toys that made us. He was being interviewed. I was just there to just fill in any any missing information. And he got a call from Target. And they said, we want, it, we want you to, to put Mego in an end cap. We want you to make 60,000 figures. 60, yeah. Um, or 600,000. Uh, we did six figures over the space of six months. Sorry, 60 figures over the space of six months. 10,000 of each. That was 600,000 figures. And the first thing we did was do Star Trek. Why, why did you feel it was necessary? Even though Mega was known for doing so many things, they made Kiss, they made other celebrities, they, they made superheroes, the, the Planet of the Apes. Why did Star Trek, why was that the first thing you wanted to start out with? Star Trek has been the most popular and most loyal fan base. They are, I know from, I knew from doing those figures with Diamond Select that there was a big Star Trek fan base that loved Mego. So, we had done Sulu and Chekhov and the Mirror Universe, you know, uh, Kirk and Spock, with Diamond. But I knew we weren't reaching enough fans because right at, shortly after the figures went off the market, they shot up in price on the secondary market. So I knew there were more people that wanted them. So when we were laying out the, the list at Mego of what to make, I was like, we're doing Sulu and Chekhov, and we're going to do the Mirror Universe the first wave in Target. And they said, really? Wouldn't you start with Kirk and Spock? And I go, I, I'm, I know this fan base. They have Kirk and Spock. They're waiting for Sulu and Chekhov. We, the first three waves, we, we did Sulu and Chekhov. We did the Andorian. We did the Gorn, you know, screen accurate Gorn. Um, Kirk in the green shirt. You know, what I knew that the Star Trek fans wanted and never had. Yeah, and buying them in real life, even though we have the original ones, it's so much fun to relive that moment of seeing something on the shelf and then you know feeling it with your hands. And th That's how things used to be. We, we want right. Mego to be everywhere. I, I don't want to order everything online. Some things, it's, it's nearly a necessity because you can't find it. But as far as a collector, I love being able to shop for Star Trek. At, at a major retailer. Well, there's that moment where you just turn the corner. Exactly. And it, it puts you right back to being a little kid again. It's awesome. Incredible job. Hey, let's talk about the Mego setup that's going to be at Star Trek Las Vegas. Yeah. <laughs> that's going to be... Uh, or we call it now 55-year mission. 
Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> we're actually doing um, some exclusives for the 55th anniversary for Walmart and Target. Speaking of which, um, I, I don't know if I really can announce what they are, but I just know that um, for the fall, you know, fall line in Walmart and Target, there is going to be uh, in each store there's a 55th anniversary figure. That is awesome. I know that the 14-inch dolls are coming out now as well. Yes. If you want to be an adult and feel like a little kid again, put a 14-inch doll in your hands. It's uh, amazing. We did a 14-inch Gorn and Kirk and Spock. So you can you can bring them over to uh, Vasquez Flats and have a ball. Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, we do a lot of uh, shopping for Toys for Tots, and there's going to be some of those – bad boys in toys for tot boxes this year and i'll tell you um paramount is very committed to to star trek they're very supportive of the new series and and the new series that's coming to paramount plus prodigy that's wonderful i mean it's that's how kids get into things is is buying is i I got into kiss through playing with the kiss dolls and, and buying the trading cards i got into star trek because of the migo dolls i mean it's you understand the bigger picture when you have something that's in your in your world. So that's good to hear that Paramount is going forward with Mego even more so. Um, I'll tell you, um, being at the uh, Las Vegas convention in 2019 made me realize from looking at the fans and, and what they were, you know, dressing up as, there was a lot of love for Discovery, and uh, that that I wasn't seeing on. The, the, the Facebook groups I was seeing, you know, but I, I went back to the office and I said, we have to put, get Discovery in our license. And that I'm looking at, you know, I, I watched the show and I, I liked it. And I said, there is, there is a whole new generation coming up and this, they're not just going to want the old stuff. So, yeah. Star Trek fans, we want it all. Especially yep. if it's Mego, I mean, we're we're big Mego fans. If it's Mego, we'll buy it. Well, I mean, historically, I mean, Mego was the first real collectible for Star Trek, aside from the Spock helmet, you know. The, and and even before Mego, the like what you talk about Remco items. Yeah. I mean, that was label slapping a lot of that. Yeah. Sure, it oh. has its uniqueness, has its quirkiness about it, but Mego from day one wanted to get character likenesses, wanted to That's have, right. st- but still have that that toy play ability to it. It, it was that that perfect blend. Well, Mego also expanded into the basically the first cosplay, the the tape recorder tricorder. Yes. The walkie talkies. Mm-hmm. Never really worked, but hey. You know, at least it looked – it was shaped like a communicator. I mean when we were kids, we actually had walkie-talkies and used them a lot because we didn't have cell phones. When my my mother was in the house and we were outside playing, she would use a walkie-talkie to tell us to come in for lunch. So, I mean it it fit the time. I just got – I just got yelled. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody's mother was calling. I don't know who. What? What? Who was that? What? Couldn't even hear the name. He's just like, ah, ah. That's the fun thing about looking through Starlog. We remember what life was like years ago when it was a little bit more simpler time. Yeah, well, you know, we're I call us bridge people. We spend half our lives in one century, half our lives in the other. No doubt about it. So, hey, Paul, yeah. we're going to see you at Star Trek Las Vegas. Yes, you will. I will be uh, – I'll be – Migo will be there uh, with a table full of product. 
Hi, I'm Bob Turner. And I'm Kelly Casto. The Star Trek Report, written by Susan Sackett. And uh, as you land on this page, the first thing that jumps out at you is Stardate 7808.7 from the bridge of the Starship Enterprise. Before we go any further, I have to talk about the Stardate. Did you did you pick up on the format? Um, yes. 78 being 1978. 08 being August. And point point seven, 0.7 being the day. The day. Yeah. yeah, I don't think that's how it really is supposed I, to work. Although n- nobody really knows how it's supposed I, to work. <laughs> I was just going to ask you, <laughs> could you show me how this works? But it was a clever way for for Susan to tie in star date with the real date and what's going on. And I, yes. I was I was kind of impressed by that. So well done, Susan. Yes, good great. job, Bob. Figuring that out too. Great. I'm telling you, there are days when I surprise myself. Great photos from production on the bridge set. I thought. Yes. Your eye immediately goes to those. Um, yes. I like the step ladder on the bridge. In the shot. The old wooden step ladder. In the photograph. Isn't that funny? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, I was looking in that, at, at that photo and the camera is pointed down at Shatner's hands. And I'm trying to remember when did we ever see Shatner's hands on his seat? And then it occurred to me. And this is how geeky I'm getting on this. This is the moment when Shatner pushes the button and the arms fold down over his legs to hold him in place as they go into the wormhole. Yes. Had yes, to be. And, yeah, it had to be. And yes, you just went super geeky. Back. I did. It was fun, though. I liked it. Ah. I, I was I was very happy with that. Um, Susan I'm describes, looking at this picture now. Do you, do you think that's what it is? <laughs> I, That's what I'm I think. Taking it was. a closer look, it has to be. Yeah, I don't remember there ever being another shot of Shatner doing something with his chair. So yeah, yeah. when the other other thing, it just I'm sorry, this is really bad. But on that first black and white picture that you're looking down in the background is a guy that just looks just like George Harrison <laughs> in the Beatles. I'm like, wait, is that George Harrison? It might have been, but maybe that's the hairstyle of the day. Could have come in and watched the production, eh? That was my attempt at a Liverpool accent. I'll never do it again. Good, good job. Yeah, thanks. For not doing that again. No, that's right. Um, Susan really goes into detail as she describes the very first scene that was shot for the motion picture. And I, I really liked what she did here. Um, so well done, Susan. And and then she goes into a detailed description of of how everyone was keyed up for the day and she she just describes the atmosphere, I thought, really well. She did. She did. I, I liked how she played off of, you know, the, the first scene that they're shooting, which is on the bridge. She kind of predicted that in the last issue, that since there are really no other sets ready. That's right. She did. Except for yeah. the bridge, that this would be the first scene that was shot. And so it's the, she describes what the scene is, which is they're prepping the Enterprise to to leave and you know and so it's hurried right because they're they're not ready to to leave if you know going back to the story they've got to depart quickly and need all kinds of scotty magic to do it so everybody's everywhere on this bridge working on things and it's mass chaos and you know from a story perspective but then she describes the scene as 
Yes, and we have upwards of 100 people that need to be here on this scene to make it all work. And she goes and I think pets Robert Wise on the back by saying, and this guy is orchestrating this chaos, both what's supposed to be in front of the camera and behind the camera, like a professional, like, you know, like it's easy, basically. It, it was a, a, a nice observational job by her to recognize that, wow, this scene really is matching what's going on in, in real life behind the camera. Right. It was life imitating art, limiting life, I guess, life. you know, at yes. that moment. Yeah. Yes. It's an interesting situation, but I agree with you. That was really cool that she called that out and made that connection. Right. Um, and she, after uh, the 15th take, right. Robert goes, hey, we're good. And everybody's applauding because really that's the first scene of any Star Trek movie ever. In 10 years. Yes. And the, in, in, in 10 years, if there's ever been anything. Yes. Yes. Right. So that was a big deal. From both perspectives, correct. From both perspectives, yep. I thought it was fun too, even though there, not the entire crew, or I should say cast, was on the call sheet that day. That a lot of those folks who didn't appear in that scene did show up to wish everybody well and wish the production right. well. Leonard Nimoy, D. Force Kelly, Persis Kambata, all showed up to wave and say good luck and you know have yeah, a good he, day of shooting and things like that. That's even though they're cool. not going to be on set for, yeah. You know, several, probably several days, if not weeks. Yeah, that's pretty cool that they would do that. Um, uh, she also, sorry, go ahead. So I, I also like, so there's always things between the lines here. So um, <laughs> she describes all the prepping for the scene, you know, that they're about ready to shoot. And so uh, as part of that, you know, she describes, well, the, you know, special effects guys over here doing stuff. These guys over here are doing stuff. The actors are in the corner running lines of a script they just got, which is yes. pretty reminiscent of Star Trek. Yes, I thought I agree with you that that she sort of brought attention to that. They're going over lines on the script that they just got. Those sheets are in blue, so they know what it is. But that is um, very reminiscent of what was happening as that script was going through constant revisions yes, on a daily basis. And the actors would, hey, it's uh, 9 o'clock. We're about to go before the camera, but here are some new lines for you to learn. Right. Oh, you're oh, kidding. Boy. Yeah. yeah, that had to be pretty rough. I, um, I like that she also uh, she talked about some of the actors who had some smaller parts that were on the set yeah. that day, and, and she called them out by name. Um, a lot of them had one or two movies or a couple of TV shows. I actually went out to IMDb and I looked up their names, but one of them was a real surprise. Billy Van Zant played the alien with the big forehead and the white hair. It looked like he just rolled out of bed and I think he had silver, yeah. silver um, contact lenses. So as an actor, um, he appeared in Jaws 2 and Taps and a lot of other things. Those were two movies that stood out to me. But in addition to being an actor, Billy Van Zant was also a writer. And in fact, he, along with his partner, Jane Milmore, they are credited as being the most often produced playwrights in the world. 
Wow. According to IMDb, their plays that they have wrote have been produced more often than anybody else's. Wow. I had no idea. That's incredible. In, in addition to that, they also wrote for mm. TV. And the two of them wrote over 300 hours of comedy for shows like New Heart, Martin, The Hughleys, Suddenly Susan with Brooke Shields. Yeah. And the Wayan Brothers. So holy cow. This guy with the goofy hair and, and the big forehead goes on to have an incredible career in uh, in the entertainment field. So way to go, Billy. Good job. So back to the Star Trek report. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Susan mentions that uh, after production wraps in late October, looking forward, production will be working closely with an optical house. Robert Abel and Associates. It's the first mention of Robert Abel and Associates. Yes. Kind of a big deal because if you heard us um, in, in our last um, report as we looked at um, issue 17, you know, the, the opticals, the special effects, they go through a number of hands here, and it actually causes the movie to be really late. Mm -hmm. Robert Abel and Associates will be the second house to work on opticals, they won't get the job done. They'll be fired in a, just a matter of months here. And with six months left to go before the movie opens, Doug Trumbull and a lot of guys that worked on Star Wars will be brought in and they'll do uh, and finish those special effects from scratch, more or less. Yes. From scratch. Yeah. And, and when you, months. Yes. And when you think of the special effects on the motion picture, and I, and I think most people agree, of all the Star Trek films, they're the most stunning. That they got that done from scratch, starting from zero, six months before the release date. Incredible. Inc beyond incredible. Incredible. Yep. Oh, and by the way, Magic Cam is still in the mix. Yes. And they mentioned, <laughs> so I like how she mentions this of Carrie Mulcher and Magic uh, Magic Cam are working on models and miniatures, including, by the way, an eight-foot Enterprise. Wait, wait. Last report, it was six-foot. I know. It either hmm. grew or the plans changed. Well, yes, or maybe there's a change already going on. Could be. Could where be. it's not just Magic Cam, it's Carrie and Magic Cam. And what's really interesting is that the model used for the motion picture was actually nine-foot. <laughs> so I yes. don't know what's going on. Maybe Susan just has the wrong dimensions. And maybe. That maybe. could be. So it's no. It big could deal. be. You're right. So I, I like the, there was a section of um, where they're talking about Gene and the first day of shooting. And, and he's basically has a little ceremony and, and she says unrehearsed. Why did she say unrehearsed? I, I Sometimes the little nuances there distract me a bit, but no, uh, I, 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 the first thing I thought of was if you're saying unrehearsed, it was probably rehearsed. It was rehearsed. It yeah. was planned. And yes. I could see him right. Or I could see her in her desk outside of his closed door. And you probably heard him. I just wanted to recognize everybody here in 10 years of freaking Star Trek. Back. <laughs> Thank you so much to everybody. You know, I'm sure he rehearsed it. And, right. Right. Yeah. But I, I like, um, and we, I think we've talked about this in our podcast, but how he presents Robert Wise with the 
black baseball cap that has the gold script lettering on it that says Enterprise, which you got to think that was a prized possession of Gene's um, because he got that from the captain of the nuclear um, carrier, right? Of, CVN 65 yep. Enterprise. Right, right. That's so, a big deal. That was a big deal. And that, to me, says Gene has a lot of confidence in Robert Wise. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, if I ever had an Enterprise hat like that, I wouldn't. I don't know if I'd give it to Robert Wise. I think I would get a duplicate and give him the duplicate. Hey, uh, Captain, remember that hat you gave me? Do you have any more kicking around? We don't know that he didn't do that. We don't. We don't. He just went, he might have gone down to the nuclear wessel and (laughs) gift shop and picked one up. (laughs) That's funny. You know, uh, Susan mentions um, at the end of the uh, Star Trek report here, the hope that there could be future movie sequels and even a return to TV for Star Trek. Um, I know that that was the hope, but, but boy, was that prophetic because absolutely that's what happened. Yes. Yeah. Well, and it just keeps cementing the fact that Gene wants to make sure he gets his foot back into the TV market. Gene wants uh, to be involved and he wants uh, he wants this franchise to flourish and I'm sure he wants to make sure he's got his fingerprints on it. Yep. It's just kind of sad that it began to unfold afterwards the way it did without him. Well, right. Right. Um, and I like how, and why well, she does say and tries to add, I think, credence to the statement, we've got all these sets now, we've got all these models and that you stand a good chance of of having at least a, a sequel or two um, since we already dumped all this money into it. Absolutely. All of that brings the cost down, right, for the sequel. You've right. got the models. You've got the sets. Well, what do we need? Do we just need to bring the actors back in and write a script? Right. Essentially. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. So, And then she brings up that Gene will be writing the novelization of the movie. Which, you know, I that would if I was at that time reading the article, my ears would perk up. Oh, absolutely! Wait, we can see what this is about. Yes, and then of course she plugs her book. Did Did you read? Yeah, wait a second. We'll put that on pause. Did you read the novelization before the movie was released back I did in nineteen seventy nine? I did not. Boy, I did. I I thought it was. I I mean, I thought it was the coolest thing ever. The fact that here is this book based on a movie that I can't see for another couple of months. Yeah, I'm going to read that. Absolutely. How do I get my hands on that? Yeah. And it was written by the great bird. Sure. I'm going to read that. Right. Yeah. That was, uh, that was pretty cool. That was pretty fun. Um, sorry. What were you going to say? And then you were, you were also talking about Susan's book. Yeah. She plugs Susan's book, which yeah. she and now Gene Roddenberry are co-writing. It wasn't, I don't think she mentioned that in previous I can't remember. She may have, but yeah, but that came out after the movie was released and right. Yeah. Good for them. Smart. Real smart. Yeah. Don't keep plugging it. I mean, that's, there's a little, lots of marketing going on there. That's right. Good stuff. Okay. We'd like to close off by going through the classifieds in the back page of Starlog and picking out a curious classified. What do you think about this one? Klingon Rollerball Team. 
T-shirts. Send self-addressed stamped envelope to Iridani Triad out of Denver, Colorado. <laughs> that would be neat, just to have a Klingon rollerball T-shirt. And I guess the guy didn't really form a Klingon rollerball team. <laughs> he just made up the T-shirt. That's what I was wondering. I I never heard of this. Is that's all it is? Is just a T-shirt, but it doesn't say send money. It says self-addressed stamped envelope. Oh, really? So that, he's okay. so now you send the self-addressed stamped envelope. And how's he going to put a T-shirt in you an get, envelope? Well, I guess it's, then it's going to be information oh, on how to it order it. Oh, okay. Strange, isn't it? Maybe yeah. Maybe it's maybe it's just a um. He's going to send you an iron on <laughs> to iron it on your T-shirt. <laughs> Go figure. That's one of the reasons why we love going through Starlog magazine. Just for the curiosities. Thanks for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and join our Facebook group. Live long and may the force be with you. Nanu Nanu.